This podcast is brought to you by the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania. The auto industry has dominated the process of moving people for well over a century, but the idea of how to best move people in the future is being disrupted by the tech sector. A recent article in the MIT Sloan Management Review notes that to have the necessary level of success, the auto industry and the tech sector are going to have to come together even further. Warren Professor John Paul McDuffie is one of the authors on the report, and he joins me here in studio. Great to see you. Good to see you, Dan. Thanks for coming in. Sure. So where do we stand, do you think, right now on that working relationship between these two? Well, you've got a variety of things going on, as uh, as always is the case and will probably continue to be. So you have uh, some of the big automakers simply working with each other. Um, you've got the big automakers acquiring tech startups, and so then they fully own them, and they're de- doing their own internal development of their AV operating system. You've got Waymo, which everybody acknowledges is in the lead, that gets vehicles from Fiat Chrysler, from Jaguar Land Rover. They've just announced a new deal with uh, Renault and Nissan. And their stance is, hey, we'll work with anybody. Uh, We'll work with any automaker and we'll work with any potential future robo-taxi fleet. Uh, We just want to be the operating system, the best driver. They refer to their software now as the driver. They're on their fifth gen driver. (laughs) Um, We want to be everybody's uh, driver. And we think we're in the lead for that. You know, others are following different strategies. But historically, that's probably not the mindset. I think we assume coming out of uh, out of Detroit and and other automakers. Yeah, I just listened to an interesting podcast with John Krafchick, who's the CEO of Waymo. And he said he thinks the uh, automakers are going to divide into those who decide they want to develop the software themselves or the full stack, the hardware and software to do it themselves so they understand it partly, Mm -hmm. and those who either don't want to or can't afford to. And I think there's something um, in that. If you look at the partners that Waymo has so far, they're smaller, weaker firms that aren't so advanced in this technology. And Mm -hmm. so that raises a question, okay, is Waymo only going to want to work with partners that they can kind of dominate? Is that their strategic stance going forward? You know, Ford and Waymo tried for a big deal. It fell apart at the last minute. Mark Fields maybe lost his job because of it. Um, uh, you know, John Kraftick says, well, that was maybe too big a deal too early for both of us, and it locked both of us in too much. Yeah. He said even Ford may feel that way now. Um, so, you know, there's going to be different combinations. I've it's, it's nothing new, but I've always found it intriguing that in this very competitive global industry, sometimes an automaker would rather work with a competitor because they feel yeah. like, hey, at least they understand us. Yeah. Uh, we talk the same language. And so you've got Ford Volkswagen, you've got GM Honda, you know, tied to the cruise uh, subsidiary. You've got BMW and D- Daimler p- pulling all their mobility stuff together. Yeah. So um, that's going to be a piece of it too. So then, then do you think that the, with those partnerships, do you think then the the auto industry has felt maybe a little infringed upon by having all of these tech companies want to be kind of in their in their end of the pool? Oh, absolutely. And they're scrambling like crazy because, of course, they have to run the existing business and they're trying to do electric as well. Um, and other new technologies while investing in these huge areas. The, you know what the market caps are like for Waymo and sure, for Tesla. Yeah. You know, Tesla is now worth more than GM and Ford, according to the, to the market. So yeah. that makes it harder for them to, to raise capital. It's a struggle for them to have credibility. You know, as, as we say in the article, a lot of the, you know, the, the pundits out there like to frame this as autos versus tech, who's going to win, who's going to lose. Sure. And they see a lot of advantages for tech. The tech have all the VC money. They have a big advantage in attracting the tech talent, which is scarce in this area. Um, 
um, they get the buzz. But we think that they don't have the capabilities to do the whole thing. They don't have it on the electromechanical end. We would argue they don't have it on the regulatory or the how to make society feel good and safe and yeah. you know reassured about how this whole mobility future is emerging. Um, and they don't really have the ability to manage a complex global supply chain the way the automakers do. So hence, they kind of need each other because the automakers are definitely not good at software. They're not good at monetizing uh, customer eyeballs and, and data the way the tech companies are. So then does this make Tesla kind of the interesting interesting potential big fish in this pond because of the fact that, that, that Elon Musk is trying to build out vehicles, but he also is trying to build out that supply chain as well? Yeah, I mean, I, I think the way it makes Tesla really intriguing, and Tesla's been intriguing for a long time, yeah. is that they are trying to do it all, right? So they have done the hard work to learn to be an automaker and do the things that big automakers have to do. And they're obviously the pace setter in electric, and they're trying to say, hey, we can be your autonomous source as well. Um, it's interesting that I think a lot of people in the autonomous industry think that Elon Musk is really hyping uh, what it, what the vehicles can do, putting things out into beta test way early yeah. without knowing it's safe, um, and attracting sort of tech evangelists, early adopters who are willing to take that risk. Uh, you know, what Waymo claims they're trying to do is make this incredibly boring um, so that, you know, you take your first uh, driverless really without a driver in the vehicle and expect it to be whiz-bang and it's like, gee, this is boring. That's yeah. their goal. And so Tesla's definitely not shooting for the boring um, market. And, you know, Tesla has tended to overpromise and uh, have their dates way wrong in yeah. terms of where something goes. But, you know, coming out of the software world to beta test something with real users that's not perfect and learn from it is how you get better faster. Yeah. Um, how long can Tesla get away with that when they're dealing with something that's so dangerous, right? So, so far they've had a few fatal accidents, but it doesn't seem to have changed their strategy. If they get a lot more, they may rethink it and regulators may rethink it. You make an interesting distinction uh, in the article and mobility obviously for the history of the auto industry has been thought about as one mobility, being yeah. able to you know move people around, but it's different now. Yeah, especially when you think you have Uber and Lyft and all the food delivery services, and, and it's just that it, yeah. it, it it mobility has become in many cases a service now. Yeah, and and so that's the other wild card here. So you know the auto companies have not been good at services, but the pure tech companies aren't necessarily uh, so good at services either. We have an, a third you know, group of entities like an Uber and a Lyft, yeah. and they've kind of mastered the early stages of mobility as a service. For them, they're trying to get to the autonomous vehicle, possibly autonomous electric, to be able to flesh that out for their business model. You know, Uber talks about it as existential because they're losing money on their existing business model with, with human drivers. So, you know, they start way behind on that side, but because they've got the customers already for their services, they become an appealing partner for either the tech companies or the car companies. Um, I think Uber Toyota is a really intriguing uh, partnership that we've seen develop, um, even as Uber has, you know, stumbled and had some problems in other areas. Toyota's a very conservative, do-it-yourself yeah. uh, auto company, yeah. but they know they're not good in services. They're experimenting with a bunch of stuff with Uber. They're going to have some of their software help make Uber's software safer in the in their self-driving experiments. 
Um, Uber is doing some stuff in rural Japan, which is very much a societal value, getting elderly people from places that have very little transportation options to doctor's appointments. Mm -hmm. That's going to help Uber's reputation in Japan, but also worldwide. And Uber London, you know, where they famously have, their license (laughs) was suspended, then it was renewed, then it was suspended again. Um, They're trying to scramble and work out a deal with uh, Nissan. Nissan made electric vehicles, Leafs, made in the UK. Uh, Uber would uh, promise to have a fleet in London as a way to be able to get back in. And so London then has to install infrastructure. If you've got these robo-taxis driving a lot of hours of the day, sure. the only way that works is if you can re- recharge them. So um, so anyway, a lot, of, a lot of things moving with that set of service providers too. So th- that infrastructure piece, how, how far along, how far down the, the road, sorry to use a bad pun, but how far down yeah. the road are, are we on this? Well, so electric is one kind of infrastructure need, yeah. right? And yeah. um, the, as we know, the suburban personal electric vehicle owner who can take it home and charge it at home overnight, no, no big deal. That's that's easy. Right. If you have a high utilization vehicle in the city center that's electric, then um, you not only need charging infrastructure, you need. I don't know, it's probably not one-to-one, but you need a lot of capacity to sure, yeah. to support that. And I don't know of any city that's really made that big leap yet. Um, we all are watching China because China's pushing their EV industry and they're willing to forward invest in infrastructure in ways nobody has been willing to. I see it as the best bid to overcome the chicken and egg problem there. But maybe this kind of London initiative, right? London was about to close off its whole center city to internal combustion engines by yeah. some date pretty soon. And that creates urgency for everybody to make this electric alternative work. You know, with AVs, it's still an open question. What everyone agrees is you have to have a geofence area in which you agree that the driverless features can work. And once you get outside of that, so that includes 3D mapping, it includes knowing the infrastructure really well, whether it includes wiring the infrastructure is still a bit up in the air, but there's there's definitely investments and choices there too. One of the things you talked about in the article, which I I find interesting is just, in terms of this this relationship that's gonna play out over the next few decades, is you forget that a lot of this has to deal with the systems that each one of these companies are bringing to the to the to the table, sure. and how you integrate them, and, and how you make them work the best for for all involved. Yeah, I mean the integration challenges are are huge. I think if any entity, be it a company or a government, could sort of snap their fingers and make the fully autonomous future happen overnight, that would be orders of magnitude easier than what we're actually gonna face. Sure, yeah. Which is 100 million vehicles per year that are traditional vehicles yeah. that have an average life of 11 years, which means a lot of them are 20 to 25 years old driving around. Yeah. Um, those aren't gonna just get scrapped uh, because of some new system. So you're gonna have human-driven and algorithm-driven, you're gonna have internal combustion and electric for a long, long, long time. And that just makes all the integration issues more challenging. So, you know, some of the more intriguing ideas, although they they probably limit how fast the diffusion happens, about getting AVs into cities involve, you know, okay, let's take an underutilized, I was just in um, Paris and had some meetings at Renault and learned about a new project that Waymo has with Renault. The area between La Défense, which is a large, you know, business corporate center on the way west of Paris, and Charles de Gaulle Airport, which is in the north, mm-hmm. is served by a congested interstate, and there's no other options for it. Right. So they're saying, hey, let's start a, you know, geofenced service that Waymo would use with 
Renault, Zoe electric cars sure. just for those two points. So they're going to control it. You can't get to the driverless features until you're on that stretch of highway. And the minute you get off, it's controlled by a human driver. So again. it would be but like between, a highway would, and not like a monorail or something right. like that. No, yeah. no, it's, it's right on the highway. But okay. So that's an example of you define the geography where you're going to do it. You absolutely cover every eventuality in yeah. that. And then you start offering a service. And you hope for enough density, enough demand that you can make it profitable and that you learn a ton a ton in the process. And then obviously the hope is, at least when you're talking about that type of a project, by doing something like that, you're also potentially alleviating some of the other traffic issues that may be on that stretch of highway to begin with. Absolutely. And so you've got basically you've got two benefits. Yeah. One, you've got something that works between point A and point B. Two, you've made it easier on, on the highways in general. Yeah. No, exactly. So um, so we're just going to see a million of these pilots and experiments. I mean, in one sense, we're going to look around and say, wow, a ton of stuff is happening. If you add up the number of vehicle miles that are covered by that out of the total human, you know, uh, passengers doing vehicle miles, it'll be a, a very small percentage. So yeah. we're going to be in this world of a lot going on, but the total impact on mobility is going to be low for a long time until these complex system things are worked out. So do you think then when you're talking about the vehicles that will actually be involved in a lot of these processes? Yep. Will it most likely, more likely, maybe I should say, more likely be the tech companies wanting to do some of this production themselves, like maybe a Tesla or you know, some of the entities, or as you said, more of the partnership angle where an automaker will be able to bring some of these vehicles to these projects as you move forward? Yeah, I think maybe outside of China, where I could imagine Baidu you know, maybe trying to have its own car company. Um, I think Tesla is going to be the anomaly here. I think every other tech company is going to want to work with an existing OEM, and the existing right. OEMs are going to want to work with them. It's just too hard to get into the business of making cars. Tesla pulled it off. They did yeah. it from the high end. They defied a lot of conventional wisdom. But, you know, there's still a niche, yeah. mostly high-end um, product. And... The car companies, you know, if they stood still and hadn't done anything, then they wouldn't have been a good partner for that. But in fact, they've done a lot and they've, you know, they have their own operating system subsidiaries there. And, you know, they can work. There's a million new suppliers in the space, but they're the ones who can work with those suppliers and pull those pieces together to make those those products. So right. I think it's going to be autos and tech to have those vehicles like for the foreseeable future. And if anyone's thinking that we've got an Apple Foxconn thing on our way and, you know, BMW <laughs> yeah. is going to be the just the Foxconn for Apple. Yeah. Um, I mean, Apple apparently had some talks with BMW and BMW was so insulted by the thought of that that they just canceled <laughs> them outright. So, you know, there's a lot of reasons strategically for the auto companies not to let themselves get in that position. And I think it's way more complicated to build a car, particularly this kind of complex, electric, autonomous, connected car of the future, than it is to build an iPhone, no matter how complex you think an iPhone is. So yeah, but, but, there's not going to be some bunch of low-power contract manufacturers that are just making these vehicles for the tech companies. But it, it's also, it, when you think about the time that we're in, and, and obviously the shift of mindset that we've seen occur over the last, what, 10 to 20 years. Sure. You go back then, electric vehicles was, you know, a thought process and you saw a few on the road. But now it is truly believed that we are going to see a a much higher level of EVs on the road at some point in the next probably 
you know, 20 years, 30 years, something something like oh, that. Oh, yeah. I, I think we're a lot closer to seeing the, the elusive tipping point for electric yeah. um, than for autonomous. And But interestingly, the two are going to converge because a lot of the pilots in cities, cities are going to say, okay, we'll let you test your autonomous, but they got to be electric because that meets okay. our other kinds of needs. And right. so you've got uh, a whole, you know, climate change and emissions regulation-based push coming in the EU, increasingly strict. China's racing forward on EVs. The Many of the OEMs are kind of tooling up. They've got a lot of products planned. You know, I also visited last week in, in France a factory that makes electric vehicles and regular vehicles on the same line. It's not a big deal to do that. Hmm. So um, so we're going to see a ton of movement on the electric vehicle front. And, and I agree. I think already the the startle factor of that is well past and people are starting to anticipate it. AVs though, I think are, you know, they've had their their sparkling moment of techno optimism and now I think we settle in for the realism of a long transition to that. But aren't aren't then aren't electric and autonomous kind of in the same boat when you're talking about kind of both of them coming forward with this new technology against what has been the traditional you know the the, you know, the gas-powered engine for so so long, and, and this shift it, it is occurring. It's going to occur, and so they're almost running to a degree side by side in this process. Yeah, I mean, don't get me wrong. It's it's the biggest transformation of the industry since it was created. So sure, you know, hundred yeah. years ago it was created. Now we get a similar big bang. So the only I think debating point is. You know, we're kind of saying don't count the automakers in the traditional industry out as being a big part of that future because of the skill sets they have, because of the skill sets the tech companies don't have, because, uh, and, and I've come back to this before, you've probably heard me say it before, um, you know, remember that automobiles are this big, heavy, fast-moving, dangerous product that operates 100% in public <laughs> yeah. space. Yeah. None of our tech devices have that characteristic. And yeah. so we have a different set of expectations as citizens, as consumers, as societies about, you know, what you do with those kinds of vehicles. You don't just let anybody who wants to kind of test them wherever they want without any concern about the consequences. So, you know, that's going to be another piece of the future we see is is how do we make sure these things are are safe? How do we make sure access is is widely distributed? How do we make sure that the data that's being collected are being used at least partly for, you know, public benefits to have a thriving insurance system that still operates and isn't only to help somebody, a tech company, send us better ads while we're in our auto, you know, our robotech. You mentioned being in France and, and seeing the production line where they're, they, they were doing what, both EVs and oh, yeah. traditional Absolutely. vehicles on the same production line. Could be a mix one right after the other. So when do we start really seeing that here in the United States? Well, I mean, GM's been making the Volt and Bolt um, in uh, a Detroit okay. area plant. Uh, they just announced this huge investment in that plant. I think they're probably going to make a dedicated vehicle for cruise in there. Yeah. I haven't seen the details of whether they'll put it on exactly the same line. Yeah. But the point is that for electric, there are not that many steps that are different that would require you to reconfigure in, in a period where you have the, a mix of the two kinds of vehicles. Right. So, um, you know, I, I think one of the areas that I'm really interested in understanding more, uh, people look at the number of parts in an electric drivetrain compared to a typical internal combustion engine, and they say, wow, it's a lot less. So that means it's much simpler. New companies can do it who don't have to know the other stuff. Right. It's going to involve many fewer jobs. 
I think there's a much too simplistic equating of parts count with all of those changes. Yeah. Um, electric vehicles that have an electric drivetrain still have to be integrated with all the increasingly complex electronics and other functionality, yeah. now the autonomous stuff, and that's still complicated to do. Um, and we just can't be sure how, where there'll be employment impact for sure, but it depends on how fast the transition is and it depends on where the jobs are. Some of it may yeah. be in the supply chain, not in the assembly plant. So um, this is one of the big areas for those of us concerned with all the consequences of this, including for you know employment and skills uh, to play out. Great seeing you. Thanks as always coming in. Okay, John Paul, see you, Dan. John Paul McDuffie uh, from here at the Wharton School, and as we mentioned, uh, that uh, article that uh, that John Paul was part of is uh, in the MIT Sloan Management Review, and you can go on uh, their website and be able to check it out. To keep engaged with Wharton Business Daily and other Wharton School shows, visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.